I play um, Frankenfurter, who is a kind of uh, new variation on the mad scientist of horror films that we all know and love. It is parody, but it also, I'm, I play it and think it as a kind of grisly reality. And uh, Frankenfurter, as a variation on Frankenstein, is, a, is obsessed with, with image and the way that things look. And, uh, but I see him and play him as, as a kind of grisly, re real freak. I found making the film more uh, annoying in that way than doing the play. Because if you do the play, it's just two hours a day and that you're actually in it doing it. And doing the film, partly because I've never made one before, and so um, the work for me is total. Uh, I found it, for the first time, actually beginning to be a bit schizophrenic in that if you spend the whole day in a pound and a half of Max Factor, uh, at the end of the day when you wipe it off, you, there's, there's always a little bit left in the cracks. Welcome to Speak All Evil, the podcast you were warned about. I'm Trent here with Kevin, Kat, and Dave. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hello. Second to last Memphis episode. All Ooh. right. Kevin's coming home soon. Can't wait. This week, Mad Scientists, one of the oldest and uh, most well-worn horror angles. We've, we've talked about The Bride of Frankenstein. We've talked about Reanimator, Bride of Reanimator. Others that I'm sure I, I can't think of right now. Uh, you always have the the classic old story of the mad scientist in horror movies. And this week we have a, a very old and a less old selection. Both a little bit of a blast from the past here. I'd say the first movie we're going to talk about tonight is one of the older ones that we've seen. Uh, Dave, you want to tell us what we got here? 1962, The Brain That Wouldn't Die, directed by Joseph Green. See? <laughs> this is straight up uh, creature double feature special it stars uh, Jason Evers as Dr. Bill Cortner and he is a mad scientist he has developed technology to basically reanimate uh, and, and transplant limbs and organs and pretty much anything he wants uh, he had, now has the technology to replace uh, he goes on a drive with his new wife or fiance and drives like a bat out of hell and goes around <laughs> this corner. They wipe out and in this convertible, her head is severed. He grabs the head and hilarity ensues. <laughs> no, it, it actually is kind of a, a serious movie. I, th I think especially for the time, big shout out to Adele Lamont who plays the head for most of the movie she has a little bit in the beginning where she's full-bodied but the rest of it she's just a head being kept alive by the solution and he's trying to find a body to transplant onto her this is like her only role uh, another actress in the movie Virginia Leith was in like all kinds she's like basically a 60s and late 50s scream queen 
Um, and Jason Evers, I found out, was kind of recently in uh, Basket Case 2, which was really random. Uh, he probably doesn't have any... I, I think he's probably R.I.P. He must be very old. But um, he's trying to find a body for his wife. And I think it's very noble. I think it's very loyal. <laughs> hmm. um, like, he could just get a whole new girl, but he doesn't want to. He wants to preserve her mind, and he wants to preserve her personality. And uh, though it's sinister and diabolical, um, I like this movie a lot. What did you guys think? I loved this movie. I had never seen this before. Dave, you've talked about it before. This is one of those old black... This is black and white. This is one of those old, early black and white horror movies that I was kind of like, I want to see it, but I'm always confronted with a million things that I'll never see you know, before I die. I'll die like having a whole list of things. So it's hard sometimes for me to sit down and watch some old black and white transatlantic accent which i didn't think was that bad in this one yeah, I, not so bad. I, I thought the, the accents were okay um this was not well received in its day really? um, no not at all and and it's this is one of those that i think that if you just took fresh views today if you eliminated all the views that came before today and you just took fresh views from today i think that it would have a higher score on whatever website you're looking at phony. Was it controversial um, I don't know that this was that controversial. I'm, there was some good gore in this, and there's some some bloody... I thought that this was actually... My first thought was that it's pretty depraved for the early 60s. We think about the early 60s as being like fuddy-duddy horror before it really kicked in in the late 60s and early 70s, but I thought this was like pretty dark stuff, I mean, as you just told the story. Um, I think there's a lot going on here beyond the mad scientist thing. Like They always do the thing where, you know, the guy is trying to play God, the scientist is, he's, he's gone mad with, uh, with hubris, and he thinks that he somehow has knowledge and ability above the order of the natural world, and that's what always, you know, gets them in trouble in these types of movies. Um, but I thought there was more going on with this where, <laughs> where he's actually trying to reanimate his own girlfriend. I don't think they're married, but... He's trying to reanimate his own girlfriend, and so I thought that lent like an actually an extra like element of the of the subtext of what's going on in this movie, intended or not. I think that this movie seems probably I don't know to me, you know, at the time it just seemed like a stupid cheap exploitation movie, but now I think this is actually oh, kind of deep on some levels, and this is uh, one of those old movies that's in public domain now, similar to uh, Night of the Living Dead. This was like they made some mistake on the copyright thing, which mm-hmm. it was is so weird to me. Like, wouldn't you? I would think you would be able to take back the mistake. Like, if you just you made a mistake on the print or whatever it was. Like, why does that have to be forever? Nobody could be like, oh no, wait, uh, do it again with the copyright. Um, but so this is on all the free ad supported platforms. You can watch this. You can watch actually. There's an extended cut on most of them so make sure if you're going to see this you watch the extended cut it's only extended by a couple minutes this is not a long movie uh, but i think there's good stuff in there um i watched this for free on youtube and it really it hardly served me any ads i don't think it served me any ads after the first one actually so you can watch extended cut on youtube you can dial it up anywhere else it's on prime for like a buck or something like that but i would highly recommend the brain that wouldn't die or as i think 
it's called in the movie it's still the the intro the title card still says the head that wouldn't die because it had it had a couple different oh, names really? yeah or at least one of the versions that that I saw um this one was interesting because you kind of see the beginnings of the mad scientist genre unfolding and coming to fruition obviously it wasn't you know the first film to do so but it was definitely one of the earlier introductions of taking life into one's hands and things kind of going awry from there. Uh, definitely Bride of Frankenstein, Bride of Reanimator vibes, especially from the whole gotta find hot body to keep my, my woman alive kind of a situation. <laughs> yeah, it has to be a you hot know? body. Hot too. body. <laughs> well, yeah, you can't have any uggos running around with your girlfriend's head Pretty on picky them. when you're robbing graves and stuff. That's what I'm saying, yeah. So you gotta find a hot blonde stripper, burlesque dancer, I just also like how the two women characters in the club are just called Blonde Stripper and Brunette Stripper. Those are the character names. I thought that was fun. Um, Also, the Just Let Me Die whole thing. I was just like reminded of the fly. Just like the kill me, you know? Yeah. Again, heartbreaking. Mad scientist movie. So I was super into that. I wouldn't say I like loved this movie. Like it's not like my new favorite movie, uh, but I think it definitely had its moments. I th- I loved the ending. I thought the ending was exactly how it should have ended. Um, I thought um, I don't know. It was it was definitely like a slow going kind of movie, like kind of repetitive. Like he tries to get one girl and that doesn't work out. He tries to get another girl. It doesn't work out because of the same reason. Um, you know, he's just trying to kidnap all these women, and he keeps getting you know thwarted. So Which whenever a second woman comes shows up, along, yeah. <laughs> so he never knows what to do when the second woman, like the witness, he's like, no, I guess, yeah, I guess, no, we're not going back to my apartment. We'll just go right to the show. It's fine. Never mind. You know, kind of a situation. But um, the showing the disembodied head being upset about being alive and chatting with the monster in the closet was really fun for me. I was super into that disembodied woman's head, just like being pissed and like trying to plot her revenge on, on her, uh, I don't know if they were ever engaged her boyfriend, her ex fiance, um, before she was decapitated. I, and I liked the creepy monster, the weird chunk mm-hmm. monster in the fucking closet. <laughs> I thought he was toxic cute. Avenger. Yeah. Very toxic. Uh, loved him. But yeah, so I liked the movie. It just like, you know, it wasn't like the most groundbreaking film I've ever watched, but you know, it's a interesting concept and I'd watch it again. I'd get down with it. Um, to start with Dave, Adele Lamont did not play the head. Uh, that was all Virginia Leith. Adele Lamont was Doris, who's a very important character in the movie. And like Kat says, ends the movie perfectly. Trent, the head that wouldn't die is not the opening credit. It's actually the end credit. Oh, okay. It's one of the That's last things you see right. that they didn't bother to change. They didn't even match the, the opening. <laughs> yeah, they got they got it right on the title card in okay. every version of it. All right. Um, the director's cut, one of, my, one of the things I laughed about when I found this on Tubi is like the regular cut is 71 minutes long. And I was like, ooh, what's the director's cut? Yeah, it's like 82 minutes long. So this thing is a quick watch. Uh, what did I think about this movie? Um, I really didn't like it the first time I watched it because I didn't bother to look at the description of it. So this is listed as like comedy horror. And the first time I watched it, I was not watching for any comedy. I was taking it very seriously, especially the way it starts with like the really intense daddy issues scene mm. where like you can already tell that the younger Dr. Cortner 
Bill has some serious God complex issues going on because his dad essentially kills the patient that they're operating on. And then his son, Bill, is like, get out of the way, dad. Let me fix this and do it my way. Um, but when I watched it a second time and I picked up on some of that repetitiveness that Kat was talking about, there actually are some like comedic parts to that. Uh, and I do think that like the head, the mo- like I can pick up on like comedy aspects of this movie. Another thing that, that you guys were incredibly right on is this is pretty messed up for 1962. I mean, we talked about Psycho last year and how it was a big deal to have like a toilet flush in a movie. So mm. how did this movie get away with some of the really intense, like gory factors, some of the stuff that it showed? Um, you know, Psycho must have really knocked down some barriers. I'm, I'm sure if you go back and listen to that episode, we got into it in more, in more detail. Um, I absolutely loved the monster that you guys were talking about, Eddie Carmel. Uh, some reports that you'll read will have him as over nine feet tall. That's not correct. But he was 7'3", so he wasn't short. Uh, and he was called the Jewish Giant, came from a carnival sideshow act. Uh, he was also an actor, a rock singer, and a stand-up comedian. And what he had was something called kyphoscoliosis, so an abnormal curvature of the spine. Um, and obviously, all, all of these actors uh, and actresses have now passed away. But, I mean, overall, the pace of the movie the, in the beginning is great. I love how it just gets right to, like I think Dave said, like, all right, let's just get right to the point. Let's drive the car too fast. Let's get this head going. Then it does kind of <laughs> slow down, and you sort of have these very cookie-cutter scenes of Bill going out to try to find a woman. Uh, he gets totally cock-blocked by another woman and keeps failing. Uh, and then it, that intertwines with repetitive scenes of Jan's head sort of telepathically communicating with the monster, which you don't see the monster until the very end. Like, that's the big reveal. Um, and sort of cuts there. And then you have like a pretty satisfying end sequence uh, where, you know, Kurt, who is Bill's buddy that apparently is staying at his this camp where he has his little laboratory, uh, the monster gets him and then Bill gets Doris back. Uh, and I thought probably the most interesting character in the movie and the most worth like digging into other than Jan's head is Doris because that's a pretty heartbreaking and very serious like third act element where Bill finds an old girlfriend of his and she has facial scars and he's basically, he's looking at her body like, oh, best body I've ever seen. Don't look at me. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, convinces her to come back with him because he's going to, he's amazing. He's going to fix her, her scars. And right. so she doesn't have right. to drape her hair down over that side of her face. Um, I thought that was heavy. And then again, back to, back to one of the comedic elements. I love the fact that this movie in 82 minutes tried to not make us notice that Bill is looking for a body and he happens to conveniently run into somebody on their way to a body contest. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, I can't help but think that where this was like really racy and saucy for the for 1962, that it makes it a little bit like the human centipede of 1962, because you also have like the desperate actress like in, in part two of the human centipede. Another mad scientist. Yeah. The mad scientist hunting down the people. And of course, they all go back to Frankenstein. But um, I think that this the thing that's cool about this movie 
is that it, it was so edgy at the time and it's like kind of like the stuff that we watch now i th- i thought this was paced great but i guess it did slow down a little bit when he's when dr bill is on his hunt mm-hmm. and that that kind of reminded me of like when he's initially on the hunt for his body it, it, in the beginning of the movie it's revealed that he's been like stealing limbs from the morgue or from the lab or whatever his dad has had like covered up for him that he's been taking people's limbs for his experiments. One of which is the the monster that we're talking about. He has locked this monster up in his in his uh, laboratory closet. Um, <laughs> but when he goes out looking for the body, for um, is it Janet? Yes, Jan. 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 Uh, when he goes out looking for the body for Jan, he's almost like a serial killer. He's going straight to people that he thinks nobody will care about you know mm-hmm. like he, he's going to on the margins he goes to the strip club he go you know he's kind of seems like he's inst- i didn't understand why he would be you know he started with he was fine with with dead body parts but then he was he wanted like a live or a, a specimen to kill kind of reminded me of like you know one of these like trucks uh, truck stop killers or something like that they mm-hmm. always they always go to you know people that they think nobody will miss lot lizards yeah I really liked uh, the assistant. There always has to be an assistant who kind of gets punished. He's like the brunt of, you know, experiments and just all the dirty work in the the lab. Um, but this guy, the part where the fleshy monster in the hole pulls mm. off his arm, and he has <laughs> so a good. transplanted arm that the the doctor had given him, and it, it was faulty. He'd been talking about how this horrible gross arm doesn't work and he's trying to leave <laughs> and then escape and he can't open the door uh that part definitely uh was comedy and like when you talked about human centipede you were talking about how i didn't get it because it was comedy you know what i mean so it's kind of it's kind of the same kind of humor i feel like well, what's what's crazy? Yes, Dave. Thank you for bringing up Kurt, who was like such a throwaway, throwaway cliche character. Like Igor, just yeah. your classic. Mm-hmm. Like, well, I'm here, and I don't like the audience is like, why are you there? He like already experimented on you and fucked it all up, and like the classic assistant, where it's like you can tell that he doesn't want to be there and doesn't agree with everything that's going on. So it's like, dude, why do you end up getting your arm ripped off? Like, you clearly should have left a long time ago. But talking about the edgy stuff, I read that this movie was made in 1959, but it was held up for three yeah. years. Yeah, right. So it even predates Psycho, because Psycho was 1960. So I wonder if it was held up because of how edgy it was. Like, I r- literally couldn't find anything other than, like, a blurb that was just like, you know, this film was shot in 1959, but held up for three years. I think it's more that we just aren't as familiar with some of the outskirts of 60, early 60s and late 50s horror film, you know, because that just, we wouldn't be. I think there's there's more, when you start digging through, there's more, you know, edgy stuff than you would think that just, it's not, you know, you don't hear about it a lot. Cat, Could you, be. you brought up the Let Me Die, which is mm-hmm. like the iconic part of this. When, when I saw that scene, I thought of you. Oh. Yeah. Thank you. And, and then at the end, when she also says, uh, I still hate all men. Yeah. I, I, yeah, that's me. Yeah, I, I thought you might like that a little more. Yeah, no, I was into it. I just, you know, it was just kind of, it was sad to be honest. You Very know, because it's obviously like him trying to keep her alive because he loves her so much, but like just th- 
the fact that he doesn't care about how she as now a floating head basically would you know go on living it just kind of shows how selfish he is as a mad scientist and how like him playing god has taken over his entire existence like even for the woman that he quote unquote loves so much you know so well he he well, says at one point that his whole life has led up to this moment mm-hmm. everything that has happened all that he's learned all of his experiments of course he didn't know that this was going to happen he was just planning on doing these these experiments where he you know stitches together bodies and he has his new serum they're going to he's going to make new people he's already doing that so he he got even more of a like um a fate complex when she died that mm-hmm. and he uh, picks her head out of the fiery car yeah. wreck, and, and she gets like decapitated in this accident because he's driving like a like you said, Dave. A by the way, out of hell. <laughs> did you mean that? I mean, I can never tell. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I see what you did there. When I first saw it, I didn't realize he was grabbing her head, and I thought he was just like leaving her there. And I'm like, wow, what a fucking dick. He's just like, look, good luck, honey, like running away. But once I saw him creepily like stumbling away with this with her head <laughs> from the accident <laughs> like wrapped in a jacket or something i was like oh okay we, he definitely has like a god like a playing god boner this whole movie we talked last week or the week before about uh i was admitting that i am attracted to the women the scream queens covered in blood the final girls and that kind of thing this takes it to a n- new level because as just ahead i would like to vote her mommy of the week <laughs> Now that's going to Tim Curry. I have a different one. Oh, jeez. What I was going to say is, Dave, I thought at the beginning, Dave was trying to paint this as like romantic, like, oh, the guy wants to keep her, you know, wants to keep her head. But I thought that there, am I wrong in that early on when she first wakes up as a head, she freaks out and he like puts her back to sleep and makes some sort of comment that's like, oh, there's still some of her in there. Hmm. Uh, mm. uh, yeah, maybe. I missed that. But he, he gets the whole lecture from his assistant about, you know, what about her soul? Which, like, goes back to the whole thing that these movies always sort of allude to. It's like, yeah, you've got the parts, the body parts, yeah, but... She's very high maintenance. Something I more mean, to a human. It's a lot of work. He's going to a lot of trouble to make, sh- make she's her... She's totally ungraceful. I thought so. Yeah, oh she could be God. dead. Huh? Yeah, what a fucking bitch. Do that to me. Do I'd that rather to be me. a head. If, if it turns out that I can either be dead or just be a disembodied head, I will go with Put disembodied head anybody. every time. Put my what? head on anybody. I don't care. I don't. I disagree. Really? Yeah, absolutely. I've been praying for death for like 10 I, years. Well, yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is kind of a fantasy for you. Just want that sweet release, man. I think it's funny that this movie is like, at the time and still is like criticized I think more at the time for like the clunky dialogue and bad acting I thought the acting was great and I think one of the things about reappraising something like this so you know so long after it was made I, to me every line of this movie is quotable like if you you could just go through and I kept thinking of lines that I want to quote but there's just too many like everything that everyone says in this movie to me is like oh man that's such a good quote I thought that the the writing was really good in this I thought so too. I also thought that uh, one of the reasons it was probably heavily criticized is Joseph Green, the director that they pointed out, this is like his only directing credit. Yeah. Uh, from 1962 to like 1986. Um, and I think he was going for a very Hitchcockian approach, 
which is going to get you pretty lambasted in 1962. Um, and I know that he filmed it. Well, I guess he probably would have been filming it around the same time as Psycho, but Psycho would have been in development a lot longer. But I think he just he set himself up for failure by, you know, obviously aping some old stuff like Frankenstein and everything that we've already brought up, but also trying to take pages out of Hitchcock's book. Probably not the best idea for a, a first time director uh, in the early 60s. And also at that time, like they might not have like meta might not have been a thing. Like no, you know, right. horror concepts eating themselves have been right. been a thing that have snowballed to something that we all love. But back then, it might have been just like, "Oh, this is Frankenstein. You suck." Yeah, yeah. I made a note that like the music of this time is much easier to replicate than the direction, and I think that this movie is a good example of that. I love the score. Speaking of the music, I there was there was something about the score because a lot of it is kind of what you would expect, and I really like that. But there was also a lot of this like uh, film noir saxophone. Yeah, jazz. I love mm-hmm. the film noir saxophone stuff. Like you thought you were watching some sort of like dark private eye movie from the seventies yeah. or something with all that. It almost has like a beat uh, poet kind of yeah, thing when he yeah. goes out to the the yeah. bad side of town. Yeah, I love that. Uh, the, well, the, the guy who the directed music, it this, says the, it says the music was done by uh, by Abe Baker who was like a, a musician, arranger, and band leader who played double bass on jazz, R&B, and pop recordings from 1934 right. through the 1960s. I saw that uh, Joseph Green uh, didn't direct much more, but he produced a movie called The Brazen Women of Balsack. That's a real thing. <laughs> Wonderful. 70s were weird. Sort of 60s. <laughs> I mean, Abe Baker did play bass, uh, apparently, on a 1957 album that was banned called My Pussy Belongs to Daddy. <laughs> Even the bass uh... player is dirty. <laughs> Even the bass player is dirty. Wow. Oh, Daddy, no. No, thank you, Well, please. probably my favorite thing in the whole movie is the reveal at the end of the monster that uh, Dr. Bill has kept away and the whole movie they don't show them they keep showing people's reactions to the monster but you don't actually get the reveal this this previous his first experiment he's he's stitched together a full person he's put his serum his uh reagent if you will into this thing and you never see it right until the ends when the monster in very classic mad scientist fashion breaks free and attacks his own creator and the reveal when when the monster breaks out of the thing ah the guy we talked about so so good uh, i loved that that was like worth the price of admission alone well it's not even um it's not even that he's stitching together people he like well, they describe it that he had like a mass of tissue and he's using like electrodes and stuff on them. Yeah, it's and more like, right. And that this yeah. the monster basically started as like a bunch of limbs that he was using elect like electrodes to try to like join and they like bonded together and then started mutating and kept growing into this massive I I love that cat picked out that it's a sloth like creature because I I did totally miss that comparison, but it's legit Goonies. Um, yeah, and it just kept growing into this massive uh, monster that we have as the big reveal at the end. I, I love the ending because the monster, everyone's making all these bad choices. Everyone's being very selfish, and the monster saves the girl who just got mixed up in everything. And uh, Sequel. 
I my thought oh. at the end of this was, where's the sequel? Swamp, because, Swamp oh, Thing. Is Doors yeah, and the this, Monster. The story Doors and the Monster <laughs> hit it off. It doesn't end at once. And I was like, oh, man, did anybody do a sequel to this? Because you don't have the end of the story at the end of this movie. It's pretty sudden. And I, I almost miss the way movies used to end. Uh, and people talk about this now sometimes with, with more modern films. Like, you know, you can't just end it anymore. There has to be some whole friggin' thing where you're setting up the next sequel and the franchise and the reboot, whatever people have in mind next. You can't just end the goddamn movie. This really just ends the movie and leaves you thinking, like, what happened after that scene? Tables have turned. Fred, Trent wants to franchise this week, I do. Not me. I, want, I do. I want a remake <laughs> and a sequel. The brain that still wouldn't die. <laughs> Again. <laughs> Flick the switch. <laughs> Fiction double feature. <laughs> so the next movie we're going to talk about, if I didn't give it away, I know that the, the brain that wouldn't die is, is not very well known. We went even deeper into a movie that barely anybody knows about. I mean, we really we're pulling something out here, guys, that not a lot of people have talked about. Not a lot of people follow this movie. So I'm really glad we're doing this. And I'm totally full of shit because... Next, we're going to talk about the probably one of the biggest cult films of all time, which is 1975's The Rocky Horror Picture Show. So this was directed by Jim Sharman and brought us Tim Curry in his first film role, which this movie should be a cult classic just for giving us Tim Curry in film. So originally started as a stage projection production written by Richard O'Brien, who would play Riff Raff in the film. He also wrote the music and the lyrics and did the book, which apparently is a big thing in theater. It ran for a number of years leading up to the movie on stage. And the movie, when it first came out, completely tanked. Nobody got it. Nobody cared about it. But it latched on to something that a few older films had done, which was it started to notice that, hey, the same people are coming to see this movie. So it flipped to a midnight feature. And they started showing it weekly in a number of theaters at midnight and noticed that the same people were coming to see it. So we'll get into what this movie turned into, but essentially what you have are Cookie Cutter, Brad and Janet. And they are a very newly engaged couple who are for some reason going to visit an old college professor in a terrible rainstorm. They end up with their car breaking down and they have to walk and they end up at the castle of Dr. Frankenfurter. They're greeted by Riff Raff and Magenta and they're thrown into a world of sexual ambiguity, a Riff Raff, for lack of a better term, bunch of people, an entirely new situation. Um, I was exposed to this movie. I'm sure we're all going to have our own stories of how we were exposed to this movie, but I had never heard of this until I was in 
one of my very early bands, maybe freshman or sophomore year of high school. And we would practice in our drummer's parents' basement, which I think is a pretty normal thing for a young band. And I came upstairs one day and our drummer, Jason, his parents were like, do you guys want to watch the Rocky Horror Picture Show? And I was like, I don't know what that is, but sure. And I watched this movie and they are hardcore fanatics. Like they're some of the people we're going to be talking about that go out to the movie and they do all of the things. They act out everything. They know all of the, the what I'll get into later is, is determining as religious aspects of being a part of the fan cult. And I, I was just blown away that I, I'd never heard of this movie. I'd never seen it. I loved it. And this was around the same time that I ran into a bunch of what would become lifelong friends from other towns that were into theater, that were into music, that were total outcasts. Uh, and I started going to some of these. Uh, we, have, we used to have a movie theater uh, in Portland, a very small one called Movies on Exchange. So I got to experience a lot of the fan uh, the, the fan aspects of it and the live performances where people are actually acting it out as the movie's going on on stage. Um, watching it again, it's been a while since I've watched it all the way through. I, I definitely know like the first three quarters by heart. And it seems like if I go a couple years without watching it, the, the, la the third act always catches me by surprise. So as a cultural thing and something near and dear to my heart from my life, I will fight for this movie's honor till the end. As a movie, it was really interesting watching it through the lens of the podcast and really trying to be non-biased and judge it as a movie. So with that, I will start lobbing this around the room. I hadn't seen this one in a while, but yes, I absolutely still love it. Um, I was one of the weird kids who would go see this performed live at the Seacoast Rip uh, Theater down in Portsmouth every year. So I've seen it a countless amount of times, but revisiting it now was really fun. Um, and apparently I still know most of the songs and dialogue. I may sucker for musicals. I was a weird theater kid, so it makes sense. Um, the music is great. The acting is fun. Dialogue is smart and funny. It just, it's like a campy, inappropriate and also groundbreaking uh, for the LGBTQ community back in the day. Yes, uh, some of the language uh, used isn't the correct terminology as of now, uh, but at the time, you know, I think it was a really important piece of work and, and was a representation of gender fluidity that hadn't been explored or kind of portrayed in the mainstream media at the time. Obviously, Tim Curry is so iconic in that role of Dr. Frankenfurter and also to be honest pretty hot 10 out of 10 daddy and mommy of the week for me um the fact that he can dance in heels way better than me is like I'm a little jealous I can't even really walk in heels but he can just strut across so can Barry Bostwick actually he was fucking killing it Rocky yes. Rocky not so much I wouldn't say he was very good at dancing in heels but you know the muscles uh, made up for that, I would say. Um, I also, I just love how Tim Curry just commanded everyone's attention anytime he was on the screen. Um, and I also love all the fourth wall breaks that his character does. Also gotta love the meatloaf. He makes motorcycles seem cooler than they actually are. Um, it's obviously, it's not a very gory film. 
but it's got those mad scientist spooky vibes. And uh, also, th- I would disagree with that. Well, you know, there's like some meat, some meat gory bits. Um, mostly just nipples. We saw some nice nips in this movie too. That was like a nice surprise. I don't remember any gore. Well, you know, Death there was count like, one. There's a couple. There was an axe. I guess there's the axe scene. Sure. Right. Yeah. But it's also got that fun little extraterrestrial thing going on. It's just a fun, nostalgic cult classic that I'm glad I got to revisit with you guys this week. 10 out of 10. I hope it was fun for y'all. I had never seen this one before. I don't like musicals very much generally, just because I don't... There's something to me about songs. Like, I want a song to be written just to be a song, not because, like, we need a song for the post office scene or, <laughs> like, there's a song that explains something in the movie or this character has to say this, so here's that song. Um, and that's one. That's the main reason I shy away from, from musicals because I just, I just want to watch a movie. I don't need the, you know, that hokey stuff. But I loved this movie yes. and I loved the music in this. Nice. The, song, the songs were great. The performances were great. Tim Curry, holy smoke. Mm. That was amazing. I couldn't believe how... I mean, everyone in this movie just owned every minute that they were on screen. Every every performance was so good. Uh, obviously, of course, his in particular, but even Meatloaf was great in this. <laughs> I thought, like, they're just... It has an energy that's so infectious. It has, like, such a fun, like, passionate and good-natured energy. And it really comes across, you know. I, I, I am jealous of you, Kevin. I didn't know you had, like, seen had seen it in, in the, the full experience. I used to hear about this from my older sisters because they, it was a big thing to them. They would go to these midnight screenings and wear the raincoats and throw the toast and the rice and all that stuff. And they would tell me about it. That always sounded really cool. So now I wish, uh, you know, I want to I go to one of these uh, because it just seems like it would be so much fun. Oh, we um, will. We will. We have to. Yeah, yeah, definitely have to. Uh, just right from the first song, damn it, Janet. I was oh. like, oh, okay, this is. <laughs> You're like, yes. So I know what you're saying with the backups first. when it's like when the backup people are just like Janet. <laughs> yeah, ma- yeah. Maybe there's like a whole intro song and stuff, but that was where it really that was where it really hit me with "Damn It, Janet." Um, Susan Sarandon, mommy mm-hmm. of the week. I don't know mm-hmm. what you guys are talking about. Um, we'll you see. know, a timeless, timeless mommy there in uh, <laughs> a great performance and like not. You know, the funny thing is, she she was like. Uh, like 30-something in this movie. Really? She's been around a long time. She's in her 70s. 20, 28, 29? Yeah. Yeah. So old. That's crazy. I was thinking like, oh, man, she must have been like 20. But oh, no. Bostwick was too. I mean, this was when they had friggin' John Travolta playing Danny Zuko in Greece. I love the narrator thing. Like, there's almost a Crypt Keeper thing where there's a there's an old guy in a library who mm. keeps he, he keeps getting interspliced into the movie to say something cryptic about the next or like give a lesson or say something about the next chapter or whatever. Um, I, I just thought everything absolutely worked in this. It was so much fun. Uh, and this is actually on Hulu right now. It's on prime. You can rent it. This is like everywhere. So easy one to see. I, I would fully recommend. I would actually, I watched it at midnight. I wanted to make Aww. myself feel like I was at a midnight nice. screening and that was a really fun way to do it. So that would be my recommendation. Um, when I was a kid, I used to like really love the horror comedies like Young Frankenstein, Saturday the Fourteenth, that kind of stuff. Yeah, so I'm surprised oh, I had Saturday the Fourteenth. <laughs> I'm surprised I hadn't wow. seen this um, because I was into like the horror uh, parody satire, or whatever. Mm. Um, 
and I, I had never seen this before either, and I absolutely loved it. Um, I found it titillating mm. and arousing, <laughs> and I had a bit of an awakening, I would say. Um, you, you mentioned that. Yeah, I usually play the, the movies here on the screen uh, while we're talking about them, but it's still playing The Brain That Wouldn't Die because... Oh, there, there's the arm scene. Oh my God. Right. I was going to put on Rocky Horror, but I'm wearing sweatpants. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> um, which... Uh, this movie just had me like blushing and, and clutching my pearls the whole time. Mm. And it was super fun. Like uh, the songs are great. It's like glam rock. I mean, I feel like, you know, as a first time viewer of this, explaining to people that the songs are good is like really ignorant of me. <laughs> yeah, it's, I it's know. A, right? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But, Welcome um, to the club. But it, they were better than I expected. I overlooked this. And uh, I, I thought that guy would play a great He-Man um, mm-hmm. the muscly yes, thank guy. You. I thought he looked just like oh, he Rocky. Did. Yeah, Rocky. I thought it was funny. Like I thought, like is that where S- Sylvester Stallone took the name Rocky? I don't think a- so. as the like the archetype muscle bound. I highly. It's probably more like. Rocky Why would you Marcellone doubt it? This or... was way before. This was before Rocky, and he's playing this like muscle bound, like you know, uh, tip this idea of the whole like the the bodybuilder beach body guy who kicks sand in your face, as they allude to, like yeah. I also like just appreciate the the era. I feel like uh, film was at like an all time looked the greatest. They had mastered film, and then all of a sudden, right when it was at its peak, digital came, and right. they just kind of like right. reinvented it. And now we're at a spot where digital looks great. Um, but this was really like you could tell this was you know filmed with like real film and it looked just amazing all the colors and everything well i think a lot of what you're talking about trent and dave and well and and i can't first of all i wasn't totally shocked when dave said he hadn't seen it trent i'm shocked that you had never seen this movie shameful a new fact about you that i did not know (laughs) shameful really um but i think a lot of why the energy really just came like just comes off the screen is Jim Sharman was offered like a way bigger budget for this movie if he would hire bigger actors or if he would recruit people like Mick Jagger, David Bowie, like the studio was willing to pay. And this is inexplicably a Fox production. And he said, no, I want to use the people from the original stage production. So Tim Curry, Richard O'Brien, a lot of these people were from the original stage production. Uh, they the studio did say we re- want you to recast Sus- uh, Janet and Brad with American actors. That's how we got Susan Sarandon and Barry Bostwick. But essentially, you've got movies when they're filmed. It's not like you do table reads. You don't go out and like practice filming a movie. But all of these characters had already done this on stage for two or three years and were totally prepared to just come do it in front of a camera. I think that is one of the... I don't know if it was unintended, but one of the magical things about this movie is you have people that have been rehearsing this and doing it live for years, and now they just had to do a bunch of takes of it in front of a camera. The set design and the costume design on this, like you can tell that it was a stage production because I felt like how much care was taken with the set and the costumes, just the way it looks. It almost reminded me of Suspiria in how much of it is like how great it looks and how everything ties together and the colors and all that like so so impressive well you know where it was shot of course 
Um, I read it and I forgot it. Uh, I don't. I don't know. I don't know. Actually, of course I know. <laughs> so it was shot at Bray Studios at Oakley Court in Berkshire, which is an 1857 Victorian Gothic, Berkshire. which is known for a shitload of Hammer films. So oh, when you're talking okay. about set yes. design, Trent, they right. got to take a bunch of old props from Hammer films right. and incorporate them into the movie. Right. You are our mad scientist. Oh. You're the mad scientist of this podcast. Yeah, that, that kind of lends like, you know, because it's doing so much camp and it's doing so much like subversive culture for the time, especially I mean, we talk about like, you know, the brain that wouldn't die being subversive for its time. This is a thousand times more subversive than that. And you're kind of like juxtaposing that with the old hammer stuff, like you said, Kevin, like that old like gothic look with this totally sort of, you know, um, kind of radical outlook on sexuality and things like that uh i mean it was I've, i don't th- think i've ever uh cruel intentions maybe is there a movie that i'm familiar with where uh where the there's a couple a man and a woman that are seduced by the same person in the same movie i, I think that happens in cruel intentions i might have it backwards um, maybe indecent proposal yeah i was thinking that yeah too. did indecent proposal did robert redford have sex with both of them no, I, I I don't remember. That's not no no. I say <laughs> I say both of them. You know. Yeah, I think it's a confidence thing, and that's what sells it. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like oh, all of a sudden, my sexual preference does not matter because this guy is just laying down the law and yeah. owning this shit. That he knows so, so how to use that that's mouth. A, so go ahead, Cap. Sorry, let me repeat it. He knows how to use that mouth. Like that was my favorite foreshadow of that was when. When um, Janet's, what have you done with Brad? And uh, Dr. Frankfurter says, nothing. Should I? <laughs> <laughs> well, my fa- so I read some criticisms of this being taken from stage to film. And one of them was this sequence you're talking about, Trent. And they were saying basically, you know, this probably would have worked great on stage because it's a very simple set. You don't have to like cut away. You don't have to change anything. But in the movie, it's boring and it's just too much camp. That's those scenes ah. have always been one of my some of my favorites from this movie. Yeah, it's great. Is the scene where they duplicate what Frankenfurter does to Janet and then what he does to Brett. That's <laughs> mm-hmm. literally That's because then good. like you you move it along a little bit, and then Janet sees through like the little TV thing that they have in the castle, like Brad sitting up and smoking a cigarette in bed while Frankenfurter is <laughs> like laying back, like totally like pleased. That's one of my favorite things is the duplicity of that scene. Did anybody notice? Now this could be me, yeah. But as far as like gore or you know special effects, that the, the scene right after that when when Janet realizes what what has happened, they they show Doctor Frankfurter sort of uh, doing his thing with Brad, and then right in the middle of that, which is like somewhat graphic, it's like a silhouette, you know, again Suspiria style, like through the curtains almost, you know. Um, and then it cuts to, to Janet, and she's crying. She sees, sees what's going on, and there's a single tear rolling down her cheek. Did anybody else notice that like, that looked nothing like a tear whatsoever? No. It was, it was thick Aww. and like, kind of weird. You didn't, you didn't, that didn't strike you at all as strange? I thought it was like, no. like semen. Huh. Yeah, I don't know. It wasn't a tear. I mean, it was just so obviously not a tear. I thought it was maybe supposed to be obviously not a tear. You're really beating around the bush. Hello. <laughs> uh, Trent, you, well, you mentioned want me to send you a link. I mean, what do you want? 
Go ahead, Kevin. I'm, I'm done with that. Nobody cared about that. It's fine. <laughs> no, that, that was actually just a tagline to, to what you were getting at. It's, you know, this movie's streaming. hey Down your cheeks. That's enough. This movie was not available on home video for such a long time because of how long it's been running in theaters. This movie has never stopped quote unquote officially being a theatrical release. Yeah, right. So if you look at like the one point four million budget, it says it has hundred and seventy million at the box office. I I think that that is literally like the cumulative total of what, forty five years since this movie came out? Um but because of that, there was never any need to put it out on home video and it almost became like a thing. Um, I, I remember I was working at Strawberries. You guys remember Strawberries? Yes, I do. And I found a, like a special edition DVD version of the Rocky Horror Picture Show and was so excited uh, to buy it with my 30% employee discount. Um, that was God, the record, the record and tape you. store, like CD a corporate store discounts. Yeah, corporate chain record and tape store. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, they they I think wisely kept this from home video uh, for a very long time, and that just built to probably so many more millions of dollars of people going out and buying home video versions of this. But of course, the studios fuck it up, and they use like different audio mixes. Uh, there's some. There, apparently, there's a British cut of this film and an American cut of this film so I don't know which one we're getting on Prime and on Hulu and stuff right yeah. now um, I am not that deep of a fan at this point in my life to really know the differences but uh, this is a movie where fans will literally pick up any new DVD Blu-ray home video uh, release and they will immediately know every single thing that's different yeah, they know the return. There's return lines in this. Kat, you were saying you know some of the return lines where the callbacks. Yeah, the audience is yeah. supposed to. They the audience oh, yeah. has lines in this apparently yeah. where you're supposed to say it back to the screen. Yeah, I was when I was rewatching this, I was definitely um, yelling things at the screen. Some <laughs> not appropriate for me to say in public. Probably I wouldn't say them outside of my living room. Um, but like, like what the theater? Huh? You wouldn't say it in theater? No, it's like a hard F. You know. Oh my oh. god! Rhymes with tag. I don't know. Oh my god! Yeah, I know. Cat Smith. I know. I You're what? Listen. Yelling that in your apartment? Yeah, you know, people were probably wondering what was going on, but I, I was just don't doing think the I've callbacks. Ever censored you before on this show? Listen, my please god. don't beat me. <laughs> All the movies. A lot of good ones. I don't know. There's just a lot of funny ones, and that's like the whole experience of, you know, you would go to these shows, and the same people would come back every single like season. And be in the audience, and they'd know all the callbacks, and so it was just like a whole immersive experience, and it was just it takes it to a whole nother level of of just other than watching the movie. So we need a field trip to. Yeah. I, I don't think this has shown I'm in down. Portland recently. We need a field trip, or or they used to. I mean, they were doing it at like the state theater. Really? Oh, really? Yeah. At the, the current so incarnation should, should of state theater. Or? I literally found one here in Memphis that's happening uh, like the Saturday I leave. Uh, which is pretty crazy for right, Memphis, we'll Tennessee. Down. But um, Kat, what Kat's talking about, what I read is that all of that started in New York City with yeah. one particular theater where a bunch of people kept going to the movie every weekend for the midnight showing. And there was a very like shy or introverted school teacher who started this with a bunch of people that they would all go together. And... 
I mean, don't eviscerate me, super hardcore Rocky Horror Picture people. I didn't go down the rabbit hole on this. But apparently he yelled out one night when Janet gets out of the car and it's pouring and she's ridiculously holding the newspaper over her head. He yelled, uh, buy an umbrella, you cheap bitch. (laughs) Seems kind of harsh. I mean, she didn't know they were going to break down in the pouring rain. Yeah, but it's like, you know, when you're like drunk at home and like watching a horror movie and you're like, it's, it's what are you doing? Don't go theater. Up the, yeah. Yeah. Oh, exactly. That turned into a religion. Yeah. That reminds me the brain that wouldn't die was shown on Mystery Science Theater. Oh, it sure was. Yeah. And Elvira had an episode uh, yeah. about it, too. So this is in that tradition. This is kind of like in some ways, this is kind of spoofing movies like The Brain That Wouldn't Die. So like the Mystery Science Theater version of the brain that wouldn't die is like people going to the Rocky Horror Picture Show and just like doing it themselves, <laughs> which is awesome. And it reminds me of like a bygone era when, you know, like you said, Kevin, it just started at a theater in, in New York City. You could start something like that, like organically in real life, not on Facebook, not on Twitter or Instagram or some corporate, uh, some marketing thing that somebody came up with to try to get people's attention with the movie, but just actually like real life people who are passionate and funny, actually just doing something in the real world that was underground and subversive and, and turning that into a, a decades long phenomenon. That's so amazing. I love that. Pre-internet. This Pre-internet. was word of mouth. This was flyers. This was landline phone calls. Like the, it's pretty, if you, if, if, if a, if a younger person were to look at this now, they'd be like, what's the big deal? And you would have to put them in a DeLorean and take them back to 1975 and be like, you couldn't text anybody. You couldn't post. You didn't have a a Rocky Horror Picture Show Facebook group. Uh, This happened organically all across not just our country, but the world. Just the way that the idea that you could catch something like that on from New York City and then have it catch on in L.A. Like, you know, that that is really, really cool. I, I, I miss the days when something like that could happen. Well, we haven't talked enough about the evil because this is speak all evil and somebody already mentioned like maybe not a lot of gore, uh, but I think this fits firmly in our podcast. I think this is, it it harkens back to a lot of other movies we've talked about that talk about power, uh, sexuality. I think both movies this week talk about women's rights and deal with that in different ways. Uh, but I thought that the uh, eating Eddie scene was uh, pretty legit to drop this firmly into Speak All Evil Land. Oh, yeah. No, th- this is a horror movie for sure. It's a horror comedy musical send up. <laughs> but yeah, no, 100%. No, there's no questioning the credentials uh, in the Speak All Evil world of this movie. I was shocked when I found out that I, don't, I just think of all these guys as Igor whoever the assistant is in these yeah. movies, they're all just Igor, Igor to me. I could not believe that the guy who played Igor in this was the composer. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And he was really, he was a great actor. He was, you know, just like everyone in the, else in this. He was just delivering his stuff, like, so well. Yeah, he said he wrote it when he was bored one winter, I think in, like, 1972. He was struggling. Yeah, he was, yes, that's a great story, too, right, yeah. He's he, he's problematic if you, I'm not going to go into it, but if you oh, read up on that. Richard O'Brien, it's he, he's had some problematic interviews and statements. Oh, uh, I did know that. That have definitely bothered the, yeah. the communities that, that flocked yeah. to this movie. Um, he's been a little wishy-washy there. That's However, a phenomenon. You can be... He didn't appreciate them? He said stuff, you know... The thing is, and we've, we've come across this before, 
you can be way ahead of culture at one time and you can be on the leading edge and doing like the best stuff and then you can still find yourself 30 years later sounding like an asshole just because you did something yes. um you know we can point to many examples of people that at one time were thought of as being on a cutting social edge who later like Ah, oh, you're just ruining it. You sound like yeah. a dickhead. I, I did read that he had he had stumbled into some of that stuff. No, it works both ways. Like, you can be on the cutting edge and then fall off. You can also be a complete asshole and become a better person, and both ways can come back to bite you in the ass. Fuck you, Riff Raff. Oh, Riff Raff was the... <laughs> <laughs> Riff Raff. <laughs> like, what is this, The Outsiders? <laughs> this is like a Heathcliff comic. I mean, when, you're, when your main character is named Dr. Frankenfurter, Riff Raff is a real in, inconsequential name. Yeah, there's a, I like that hot dog song. Yo, yeah. It was all just hot very, dog. like, I don't know, all just tongue-in-cheek all the time in the best way. <clears throat> the other thing we haven't talked about enough is, like, the serious, like, am I wrong in that there's, like, some, like, Nazi hints in this movie with... yes. Dr. Everett Von Scott, Mm -hmm. how Brad keeps misinterpreting Janet's name, Janet Weiss, as Janet Weiss. And just some, like, serious... uh, I know that Tim Curry stands for a million different things, but one of them could be for, like, being drunk with power. Yeah. Yeah, almost like a... Almost like in a... This might sound weird, but, like, in a Pink Floyd, the wall way, this this megalomaniacal kind of thing that veers into this like sort of fascism. Yeah, I could totally see that. I did not think of that at all. I definitely did because uh, Rocky. He's the the, the Aryan superhuman. Exactly. Yes, totally. Wow, I did not think of that. I think you're onto something there. The other big thing is like Rocky, I, I think the movie was getting at this and I think it's even more messed up that the cult following that happened literally did it. It's a religion. Like the movie, I think, is, is getting at religion in terms of look at how like revered Dr. Frankenfurter is. It was a cult, yeah. But like, yeah, but religious. But look what happened to the fan cult. Like we call this a cult classic for a reason. But this is one of the instances where like everything that the audience doing interactive things at these live performances, it's like a sermon. Like, yes. you're yelling things Ooh. back at the movie like the movie is the preacher. And in yeah. the movie, like, I, I always forget every time that Time Warp, probably the best song in the flick, uh, other than science, I didn't uh, know science that, fiction double yeah, feature. Yeah, I knew that song. I didn't know that was what it was from. Totally mm-hmm. ignorant. Time Warp. You do. Time Warp comes before you even meet Dr. Frankenfurter. Mm-hmm. And you're so right. amped up. And then Tim Curry shows up <sighs> like the pastor. The cult yes, leader. Totally. And even though his song isn't as good, everybody what? falls in line. They go from like doing their hymn, the time warp. They know it. They know every move. They know all the lyrics. And then here comes the pastor to preach to you, to remind you, hey, by the way, I'm the fucking leader here. Yeah. Yeah. That's you got some great takes this week, Kevin, as usual. I being so new to me, those things didn't even occur to me. Diabolical. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of good. There's a lot of good articles online that like hint to it. But like, if you dig into it, like the Nazi thing, there's a a moment where uh, Magenta, after Rocky is born, she looks at 
Frankenfurter and says, it's a triumph for your will. Oh and then my you can God. find that there's a 1935 wow. Nazi propaganda movie wow. called The Triumph of the Will. That's so sly. Yeah, I, I kind of had an awareness that a lot of things were, were like blowing over my head while I'm just taking this in for the first time. There are so many like sly asides and everything is a reference to something. There's a reference to all the old horror movies in the beginning. Like, I know I'm not like getting all that stuff. Wow, that is, that is amazing. The last thing I'll say about the religious thing is like the ending, the third act, I do have a problem with. I think it's like very thrown together. It's really fast. There's a lot happening. It's easy to watch the movie and lose it. Uh, the songs lose a little bit. Some of the not so good songs are at the end of the movie. Um, and the alien thing, like I was struggling to sort of fit that into some of these like religious theories, but I was almost like they were basically saying like, hey, you can be who you are and you can do things like you can change culture, you can change perception. Like you've totally sold Brad and Janet, these conservatives that this is great, but don't go too far or we're going to have to take you back or we're going to have to take you out. Interesting. And then when mm. they blast the house off, I was like, wow, that's like really powerful. And then I was like, wait, is that the end of the Peter Jackson movie, Bad Taste? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I think that is a reference. Wow. Yep. I mean, you can keep going, Kevin. I got nothing more. You're, you're sermoning me now. I'm in your cult. Mad scientist. <laughs> oh, oh, the, the car that they get married in in the beginning, I had that very same car. Uh, <laughs> like, What's that? The car that they get married in in the beginning is a Belvedere. I used to have the, the same car. Wait till tonight. She got hers. Now he'll get his. Oh my god! Oh, that's, that was so funny. And but, I loved when they, when Janet and Brad, they walk from the wedding, and they're just like walking and talking, and they end up in the graveyard, like they're from this like moment of, of joy. And then all of a sudden, they're in front of a bunch of headstones and stuff. I love the beginning too because you've got a ton of characters you'll never see again. Yeah, yeah. But then also standing in the background is the American Riff Gothic, Raff, Tim Curry, and Magenta. And I love how oh. they're at a wedding. You never see inside the church for the wedding. But as soon as they start the first, uh, or I guess the second musical number after the intro song, you have uh, Janet and Brad getting engaged. And then they get into the church, and they've somehow flipped the church from a wedding scene to a funeral. Like, there's no law, it's no longer set up for a wedding. There's a casket sitting there, and you right. still have yeah. Riff Raff, okay. Tim Curry, and Janet. Yeah, yeah, or, yeah. I'm sorry, yeah. Magenta to do like that, you know, damn it, Janet. Mm -hmm. um, there's a ton of like subtle things that they do in the movie that you can tell is because this was a stage play, and everybody was so used to like, okay. Let's let's change costumes. Let's flip props. Right. But in these instances, they use the fact that they were making a movie as we can show the outside of the church and we don't have to go through all this. Let's even take it further with some of our imagery and subtleties in the background props to be like, wait a minute. They just got married. Uh, why is it set up for a funeral now? It's just there's so many brilliant things in this flick. I didn't. I didn't know that that was Curry and uh, and Magenta as the American Gothic no, couple. No, that's Riff Raff and Magenta. Oh, I'm sorry. And then, yeah, it's and Riff Tim Curry standing in in between them. Yeah, kind of like a priest like oh, okay. figure, yes, maybe. Very much so. Again, that painting comes back up later in the movie. So if we went to go see a production of this because you had never seen the live one, they'd draw a V on your forehead, and then someone else would have to lick it off. <laughs> hey, I I told Love you it. I had an awakening, and. <laughs> 
Kevin, I also, uh, now that you know so much about the movie and everything, I have a lot of questions about, like, uh, swingers culture and stuff, uh, if you want to talk oh, after the show. do you? <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait till I'm home next Saturday, okay? Uh, Trent's, Kevin, you should do Trent's a podcast. calling me on that. Trent's like, oh, yeah? <laughs> Kevin, you should do a, a podcast about horror movies or something. I think you'd be good at it. You're, you're uh, going solo. This is, you're you're done with this. I think you should just like go solo now. Leave us in the dust, holding ah. you back. Um, so, Susan Sarandon, obviously Janet Weiss or a Vice. Um, <laughs> I forgot that she was in the Lovely Bones, dude, and that's I a Peter too. Jackson movie. I just wanted to say Peter Jackson on this show again. Yeah, Barry Bostwick, that Brad Majors. Uh, I never knew this. He originated the role of Danny Zuko in Greece in 1972 for the stage production and got a Tony nomination for that. And Dave, did did your daughter ever go through a teen beach movie phase? Mm, depends. Well, she didn't grow up in the 50s, so. No, no, no. This is like a, a, a modern movie. She was in, I think you asked me this before. She was in a Mermaids at one point, but I, I don't know. Uh, okay. Teen well, beach. whatever. Barry Boswick is in like teen beach movie, so that's a big deal to my daughter. Uh, Trent, the narrator you were talking to that like keeps come like cutting in about him. and giving like very ominous and and like very important facts, but also is my favorite part of the time warp. Uh, that's Charles Gray. This is the narrator who is in a bunch of Bond and uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes movies, but also tons of like English stuff. Um, Nell Campbell played Columbia, the who was called a groupie, who was from this the stage production. Uh, Patricia, Patricia Gray played Magenta, who was from the stage production. Uh, Rob Zombie brought her back to be in The Lords of Salem. So if you look at Patricia Gray in this as Magenta and then watch The Lords of Salem, you'll pick her out right away. She's also the lips from the intro. She's lip syncing right. the science fiction double feature, which was sung in falsetto by Richard O'Brien. Um, and then you have Jonathan Adams as Dr. Everett Von Scott, who was the narrator in the original play, uh, which was dual rolled. So Scott and Eddie uh, in the plays were dual rolled. Um, and then Peter Hinwood, Kat, you mentioned how he wasn't the best actor, maybe not the best dancer. He definitely wasn't the best singer. Well, this was pretty much all he acted in. Now he's an antique stealer and doesn't really like talking about this movie a lot. And all of his uh, vocals were overdubbed by an Australian pop singer. And then we have Meatloaf, which we have not given enough love to Meatloaf. Kat, you mentioned that he have. made motorcycles cool. He didn't drive a motorcycle in this movie. And when you said they make motorcycles cool, the stunt person that drove the motorcycle would probably disagree because the motorcycle fell off the stairs when it was driving up them and landed on top of him. Um, I just think that motorcycles and people who ride them are stupid. So if, if we got those Mad Libs, let's get going on that. All right. Mad Libs round two. Count Dracula Inc. Cat will be going first. Cat, mm -hmm. I need a plural noun. Wieners. Oh my god. I think that's a repeat. <laughs> Themes. It is. Um, so Trent, you would be next? And what is it? What is it? I need a verb ending in S. I was gonna have a whole bunch of words ready for this week and I totally forgot about the mad libs. A verb ending in S? Mm. Yes. <sighs> Comes. Dave, I need a noun. Scientist. 
cat. I need a part of the body. This is your lot in life. Like every part of the body goes to cat. Uh, eyeball. Oh wow! Mixed it up. <laughs> you didn't say wiener. <laughs> Trent, a plural noun. Plural noun. Beakers. Beakers. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, I'm gonna try to like go with the themes. If you didn't pick up on that, Dave, just a regular noun. Monster. Cat, a plural noun. You can say it. No, I'm not going to say it. <laughs> um, I'm going to say uh, plural noun. Um, rabbits. <laughs> All right, Trent, a type of liquid. Serum, obviously. Mm. Dave, plural noun. Brides. <laughs> Cat, noun. Uh, uh, tree. <laughs> Trent, adjective. Um, adjective, uh... Sexy. Mm. <laughs> Great answer. Dave, noun. Goblin. Cat, noun. Uh, They're all nouns from here on out, so guys, get your many, nouns How many more do we have? I appreciate that. How many more do we have? It's only one more each. Cat, Trent, This is my Dave, last one? Yeah, Final last round. noun. Get Wiener. Wiener. This <laughs> is really making a fool of us. Yeah. Trent, noun. Corpse. Ooh. Like it. Dave, noun. Laboratory. All right. Are we ready? Mm-hmm. Flick the switch. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Count Dracula, Inc. Count Dracula is the most famous of all wieners. <laughs> he, he comes during the day in oh. a coffin. Mm. The Count is never seen without his black scientist, which he wears <laughs> draped over his eyeball. No. When he flaps his beakers, he turns into a bat and flies off into the monster in search of rabbits. The Count can only remain immortal by sucking serum out of human brides. Mm -hmm. He does this by biting them on the tree with his sexy teeth. Superstition has it that people can protect themselves from a vampire by holding up a goblin or wearing a clove of wiener around their neck. <laughs> it is also believed that the only way to kill a vampire is to drive a wooden corpse through his laboratory. Woo! Oh, let me job, die. Guys. Let me die. Great job, Kevin. Let me die. Let me die.